What is the cornerstone of your life? Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and in this podcast season, we are looking at uh, Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Matthew, considering the disconnect between Sunday and Monday, that is, between faith and life, and trying to see how that how that gap is closed. And I'm going to invite us, as we hear this really challenging parable of Jesus, really biting, um, what it might mean for us on a personal level to think about the cornerstone of our life. And then in the second half of the podcast, I want to pick up, I think it's probably more realistic context, which is more historical and religious and political in many ways, and kind of delve into that. But without further ado, let's get pondering. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went away. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Then he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. What is the cornerstone of your life? We hear today from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's an invitation for us to consider the cornerstone of our own existence. And many of us have seen a cornerstone before. It's You know, that stone in the corner of a building that maybe has the date, uh, the year uh, carved into it when the building was uh, built. But a cornerstone isn't simply ceremonial, but it has a particular purpose. And that purpose is to define the X, Y, and Z axis of the building, to to define uh, where uh, the builders can move in each direction, how the kind of lines of the building, the sort of the the pivot point here for its height, its depth, uh, and its width. In this way, as the builders build, although there's nearly infinite possibilities that can grow off of any cornerstone, that the builders have something as they move ahead, they can go back to the cornerstone and say, are we aligned? Uh, is this actually going to work for us? Um, 
is, is the brick that I've just laid, is that actually uh, where it should be? And in our lives too, as we move along and we build our life, we have to make lots of decisions. We have to decide, for example, uh, do I take another job? Uh, how do I discipline my children? What activities do I engage uh, them in? Uh, when do I retire? Uh, you know, how do I move ahead in, in my marriage? You know, all sorts of things like this. What treatment should I, I get for this health challenge facing me? Um, you know, what volunteer activities should I say yes to? You know, all sorts of stuff that we have to do. And when we make those decisions, we, whether we have it explicit or not, we have a cornerstone, right? We have some sort of guidelines in our mind, some set of values, whether they're articulated or not, that are determining whether we say yes to those decisions. Uh, so, for example, um, if you're a firm, you have likely a vision and mission and values, and you can sort of measure them up against that. That's sort of their functioning like a cornerstone. And few of us as individuals are, say, that precise about it. But even within our families, we all probably have some identified values. Um, and if you don't, this would be an opportunity to think about what those are. What are those values? What are those um, yeah, what are those, those uh, criteria for you for really saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do in this decision? So, um, for example, uh, maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's health of people in your family. Maybe it's just there's a commitment to sort of a number of hours a week you want as a family. A pace of life. Something about your faith. So, what are those core values? What are those criterion for making decisions that you again and again go back to. Now, the Bible, really all the gospel writers, all the New Testament authors, want and understand Jesus to be their cornerstone. And they understand uh, Jesus to be the judge um, and Jesus to be, again, the, the moral standard, the chief value that we live by. And I want to ask, though, and reflect on what does it mean for Jesus to be our cornerstone? What does it mean for Jesus to be our cornerstone? Yeah, how can we measure our lives up against the values of Jesus. I mean, perhaps this is as simple as saying when we, you know, look at a decision, you know, what would Jesus do? Um, although I, I've, I think that can be helpful at some points. Other points, I'm like, well, Jesus would go die for the person and then be raised up from the dead. And that's not always the option <laughs> that I have in front of me. So we can't uh, pretend to... Uh, have all of Jesus's powers at any given moment. So sometimes there's a limit even to, to what uh, would Jesus do because Jesus would uh, do something because he's God that, that we cannot. But I'm just curious, what, what do you consider? What does it mean for you in your life to have 
Jesus as the, the cornerstone. One of the other sort of related questions then that would, would come out of this for me is, if Jesus is the cornerstone, how often am I checking against the cornerstone? Uh, again, if you're building something, you need to look back and see the cornerstone and make sure that things are aligned. And if Jesus is going to be the cornerstone, this would suggest that we uh, need to be taking time to to look back and to to see if indeed the the lines of our life, the decisions that we're making, the way that we're we're building, whether it's on a personal or you know a professional, whatever uh, aspect of our life, is this actually lining up? And I think that's part of actually what happens in worship, as we have this opportunity to think back and to reflect on uh, where we've been and, and make sure that we're still uh, building on the cornerstone. So where in your life do you are you able to kind of take a look back and sort of compare to where the cornerstone of your life, which it should be, which is Jesus? The scripture here suggests that the stone which was rejected has become the cornerstone. And I think this offers such grace and mercy for me because I think there's a lot of times in life when I've rejected uh, the wrong things, uh, where uh, I didn't make uh, the right choices uh, and or things just didn't go the way that I had uh, thought they would unfold in life, right? The building plan that I had uh, turned out to to sort of crumble uh, before my, my very eyes, or, or maybe not fully crumble, but just kind of not materialize. You know, I, I tried something and it, it just didn't work out. Um, had a hope for a relationship that didn't, that didn't bloom. I think all of us at some point had unrequited love, um, right? A professional opportunity that, yeah, didn't emerge an idea or a project that kind of fizzled out, a relationship that just kind of hasn't healed, and it's in part we acknowledge because of our own doings. And what the Bible promises here is that somehow, even out of those um, rejected uh, parts of our life, even when we've rejected the good thing, even when we've rejected God, that somehow um, God finds a way to be reestablished uh, in our lives. And so I'm curious if there are times or spaces in your life where you haven't made the right choices. You've rejected the wrong things or built uh, not on Christ. You didn't look back at the true cornerstone and, and things just didn't work out. Yet somehow in the Lord's doing, there was a a new opportunity or some other new part of the building of your life or maybe just the building of your life kind of had to start all over. And I'm uh, just curious where, what it has looked like in your life when uh, the rebuilding has has happened um, on parts of your life that you thought were really damaged or broken or beyond repair. But behold, uh, there's something amazing going on. God is doing a new thing. Uh, causing there to be renewed strength and rebuilding on a part of your life that, again, you felt was, was not the way it should have been. 
in 455 AD, the Vandals sacked Rome. And you might not know that date, but you probably know the word Vandal, which comes to describe the destruction that they wrought on the Eternal City. Well, what you may not know, though, is that actually the Vandals were confessing Christians. They just happened to be of a different sect or what we might call a different denomination. I want to get to that and how it relates to this parable, but we need to go back and look at this parable. The first half of the podcast, I looked at the parable through a very personal lens of what this parable and Jesus's words could say for your my life. But I don't think that's actually the original context that Jesus meant it in. Jesus in this section of Matthew's gospel in what we heard the last podcast and, and what we're hearing today is really speaking to the religious leaders and really speaking against them. And we know that in part because of the context that happened earlier in this chapter where he enters into Jerusalem. He has this encounter with them where they're mad at him, that is the religious leaders. Then they find him in the temple and they start pushing him and he pushes back really hard. And finally, after this parable, they even say in the end, or Matthew lets us know that they understand, they perceive that he's talking about them and they are furious, indeed wanting to kill him. So what's going on in the parable? Why, why are they getting so mad? Well, the parable is about the nation of Israel. Whenever you have a vineyard, the Lord planted a vineyard, that's, that's the God of heaven and earth, and that's his vineyard typically talking about Israel. This is a riff on an Old Testament uh, metaphor. Uh, and what he says is, is that there are tenants, the ones who are running the place. And these are the religious leaders. And in those days, it's probably fair to say that religious and spiritual are not quite so different that the religious leaders in Jesus's day, sorry, the religious and political, that they would have both had, had a lot of overlap. So anyway, the, the pubas, the garters of the institution are there, and the Lord sends prophets uh, again and again, patiently, many chances, sends prophets. And this is what the Lord did in ancient Israel. And these prophets come and they decry the idolatry. They decry the fact that people aren't obeying the commands. And in the end, um, they're not listened to. They're ignored. They're killed. They're stoned. They're run out of town. And this even happens up into Jesus' day with John the Baptist, who was ultimately arrested and beheaded. And finally, Jesus brings the, the parable to a fevered pitch, and he says that the Lord of the vineyard, the true master, this is now he's talking about God, will send his son into the vineyard. Now, again, this is one of those places where people say, well, Jesus never claimed that he was God's son. Okay, like this parable, Jesus is claiming, I'm that one. And what are they going to do? They're going to kill the son. Jesus here is predicting his, his own death. And so this story is about how the ancient rulers, the ancient priests, and, and ruling religious class of, of Israel again and again did not heed the word of the Lord. They did not heed the prophets that God was sending. They didn't listen to John, and they weren't going to listen to Jesus. And so we can leave this then as a historical indictment of ancient Israel. But I'd like to offer that I think it actually is really a statement about how the how the ministry on earth has again and again unfolded. Because what, what happens 
is, well, the, the other part before I sort of go into the history of how this plays itself out is to say at the end, though, Jesus says there's going to be new tenants. And what I think is significant there is that uh, Jesus acknowledges that the new system that he's bringing about isn't just going to be servants of God. They're somehow going to be tenants of the land. And the way that I interpret that is to say that there's always going to be an institution, a thing called the church. And, and that what, what happens is that inevitably in, in history, there is this pattern where there is some religious group of Christians that um, really has a servant's heart, right? They're really servants of God. That's the little Greek here. They're servants, slaves of the Lord, in fact. And they give of their lives to the poor, to the gospel, to the needy, to those on the margins. They, they work with almost no pay. I'm thinking about, you know, nuns who, you know, who have given their lives in Catholic schools in poor urban areas or, you know, across the globe. You know, missionaries who gave up, you know, income in America to be doctors in, you know, third world countries, right? People who just work so many hours as volunteers in churches, whatever, right? So there's this huge effort. Well, what happens is that um, ultimately they, they build up the church and it becomes an institution. And then at some level, the leaders in that institution become concerned, too concerned about their own status and preserving their power. And they become worldly. And then come along the servants of God. And the servants of God say, hey, we need to be doing more for the poor. We need to be really reaching people. We're not working hard enough for this. We're not giving it all to Christ. And, and the leaders on the inside say, go away. Go away, go away. And then ultimately those people go and they start to do another church. A new thing. A new and sometimes this isn't even necessarily they leave the whole Catholic Church. Maybe they became an order. Why do you think we have the Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, um, the, the Jesuits, right? People who say there has to be a reform and the institution just isn't moving fast enough. Uh, and over time, all of these orders sort of have their bumps with the sort of the, the rulers, the institution on the inside. And so what happened with the Arians, um, sorry, what happened with the Vandals is that there was a bishop named Arius, and so his followers were called Arians. And uh, they basically in the 300s lost this big inner church battle about the divinity of Christ. And the Arian Christians, which again sounds racial and therefore terrible, but the, we'll call them the followers of Arius, wanted to emphasize the humanity and, and really in some ways denied the divinity of Jesus. And so this was unacceptable, but you know, they went off and they did work and they did missionary work and they actually went and they converted the heathen vandals. And so the vandals were Christians. And then they sort of ultimately uh, take over Rome, which by that point had become fallen and corrupt, as Augustine writes in the, his book, The City of God, where he really talks about the way in which Rome, even by 400s, had, had sort of lost its, its uh, glamour it had had lost its grounding. Um, Nestorius, a bishop in um, what we, we call, I guess it's Constantinople, Byzantium, uh, Istanbul, uh, he anyway gets kicked out of the church too because he um, has an argument about Mary and her divinity and Jesus and all this stuff. Anyway, he, his followers, they go off and they do mission work and they end up building a church that we know by about a thousand has a huge following in Central Asia and Western China. 
areas that are no longer Christian, but at that time, there was a huge Christian following there. Or, you know, the medieval papacy. And again, whether, um, whether you're a passionate Catholic or not, the medieval papacy was clearly in need of reform. Right? These popes were having wives and children and estates and, you know, were living high in the hog while people suffered. Um, Luther comes along, and, and, uh, but ultimately the Lutherans become their own sort of establishment that in some ways the Anabaptists rally against. And in many ways, Anabaptists then go to America and they flee, but they build a church and then they become the powerful that sort of purge out the, you know, the Salem, uh, you know, and Salem, the witch house or other examples. I mean, we could give example after example in history. Even the Pentecostal movement itself is is an outgrowth of the Methodist church, which is an outgrowth of the Church of England. Uh, You just see again and again how the church becomes institutional and it rejects the impulses of the prophets. And it, it, it pushes out the prophets who then just do ministry, and out of them arises another order, another denomination, another wing of the church, another just movement like Pentecostalism that spans the globe. So where does this leave us today? I am in a denomination that is slowly disintegrating, and one could even argue that in the country of America right now. Christianity is in decline. And in fact, many people are leaving because they're grossed out with the alignment of church and power and politics and abuse of power. But today's passage and the stories that I've told remind us that ultimately uh, we're not the only ones as humans and our mistakes don't determine human history, but God's hand does. And so I trust that even though it may seem like the tenants um, aren't listening to the prophetic voices of the Spirit, that God is alive and God will certainly and always do a new thing.